following podcast contains coarse language and strong opinions on wine. Seriously, these two have potty mouths and little self-control. Listeners, you've been warned. basement studios that are still standing here in suburban Chicago. It's another edition of That Wine Pod. I'm Pete, and sitting across from me, the Karnak of wine, Vino Mike. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. So we had a twister. A twister. It's a twister. Thankfully, nobody, as of now, is was, was injured. Uh, well, I mean, a few people were injured. Yeah. At least one critically, but I don't think there's been any deaths, I, but a lot of destruction very nearby. It only missed us by a couple of blocks. It's so wild, man. Like right in the hood here. Um, I feel like we were far away and we were like five miles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that, that feels like forever when it comes to like a, a, an actual tornado coming through. I've never experienced in my time living in Illinois a tornado coming through such a densely populated area. Right. I mean, we are in the Midwest. It, you know, certainly is not a rare occurrence, but I think it's a very rare occurrence for coming through such a populated area. So, you know, we're in the Western burbs of Chicago. I think it originally, the tornado originated in Naperville, which were probably where it formed. Um, the damage on the news and everything. I mean, just people, some people just lost their entire house. Yeah. And then you're just a little bit east of Naperville. You're like the next town over where our studios are here. Yep. And it came through here. Did it come through the little bit north of you? Just to the north. Just of, to the north. Yeah, like barely to the north. This thing was moving like at a east-southeast trajectory. If it went straight east, like like our my town would have definitely been been in the path of this thing but luckily it, it was going more southeast luckily for me and everyone else that lives out of its out of the cone out of the path but yeah I mean, blocks away from your house dude yeah and i'm not sure that they've got all of that right as of now yeah with sure, the trajectory sure. because i know that just a street over from us like even one block away got the edge of it okay and then it's to the north that got the brunt of it so i don't see how it could move they keep saying Southeast, but I, like, it doesn't make any sense to me um, yeah, right. because I could trace the destruction uh, to the North East. So it's very odd, but it also stopped. And either way, I, I mean, there's definitely a lot of down trees, some, like you said, homes destroyed. It, it was, it was harrowing to be in the basement and have, you know, your six year old go, you know, are, are we going to be okay? Right. And of course you're saying yes. And then you see that the, they're saying that the tornado is literally three blocks from you. Mm. And it was just like, whoa, that mm-hmm. was that was bad. We don't know anybody who was damaged by it personally, but driving around the neighborhood, it was just heartbreaking. Yeah, man, this was less than 48 hours ago. And I drove over here for to record today with you, of course. And the route I take on, it's called Plainfield Road. I've never seen so many branches, trunks, trees. I mean, they're they're hustling to get this cleaned up. So there a lot of them are already piled up on the sides of the road um, waiting for the wood chippers to come through and whatnot. But I mean, I've never seen so many 
in, in my entire life. And I can't even imagine that's like a main artery road. Like they have some of the neighborhoods closed off. You can't even go down the roads unless of course you live there. Um, you know, certain roads are closed off around while they try to clean, clean this up. But anyways, yeah. So I mean, yeah, feeling totally blessed. And if you were, you know, part of that path of that tornado, you know, we're, we're, our thoughts and, and prayers are with you and, action too if you need anything reach out yeah because you know even if it's a bottle of wine we're happy to contribute one or 12 of those <laughs> exactly there's a few few laying around here exactly so. people need to, to probably get get nice and relaxed and and sort of breathe after after what happened here um you know some of the feel-good stories that i saw in the news are just how the neighborhoods all came together right yeah. like neighbors were coming out bringing bottles of water to to everyone but then they would just put the water down and just jump in and start hauling debris and, and what, whether it's trees or parts of people's homes, just helping with the cleanup effort. Um, you know, nothing like that to remind us we're all human. Yeah. Everybody is in it together. Yeah. I, I've put my name on a list to volunteer in here uh, in Woodridge. Cause that's, we got, I think most of the pictures on the news were Naperville and, and Woodridge. Yeah. Uh, and there's plenty of destruction. So I put my name on the list to, to help. And the thing, I mean, oddly, they actually said, look, we're inundated with too many supplies, too many people. Put your name on this list and we'll reach out if we need something. But right now, right on. we have way more than we can even do anything with. Great problem to have. So that's what I thought, too. So I'm like, well, I won't, you know, I'll just put my name on that list and, you know, see what happens. Go from there, for yeah. sure. In the meantime, we'll just, you know be frivolous and record our first <laughs> ask the glass holes podcast yeah man right on you know before we jump into it what you had an awesome nickname for me today and i i would like to ask you what that meant <laughs> <laughs> so it was an old carson johnny carson bit oh where he would be i think it was karnak i hopefully i got that right but he would kind of put an envelope up oh, to his head and, sure sure you know. sure i i didn't recognize the name to that character I, um I, because i i know look, who you're talking about but I, I mean i was probably like whatever seven eight years old watching that when it actually happened or less i don't even know yeah thanks for reminding me that i'm that much older <laughs> that's one two much like the rest of the show i don't research your nickname so i have no idea if i'm right <laughs> But All I'm, right, but no, I'm pretty no sure. Worries. I like it. I and I I dig the tie-in now to our uh, to our 21 questions. Yeah, or something like that. We've got a lot. Of, we got a lot going on. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, thank you to everyone who jumped in on this and submitted a question to us. We're going to try to get to them all here. Uh, I was We're right. Do it, our best. It was Karnak the Magnificent. Karnak the Magnificent. Yes. All right. Yes. All right, so at least I got that right. That's the only thing I'll get right on the show. There we go. So the rest of it's really going to be all about Mike. But we got one question that inspired our wine choice today. So a lot of our questions came from Instagram, I would say the vast majority. Mm-hmm. This one came via email from Scotland Kiefer. Yeah, I was so excited to open up our email account. And there was something there other than an update from Anchor or Twitter. Or yeah, something. it was great. It was like, hey, a person emailed us. Yes. So, yeah, he says, I love San Giovese. Who doesn't? Especially Chianti Classico. Mm. Are there similar areas that might broaden my horizons? Yes. So we broke out one such region if you want to get a little pricier. Um, well, 
pricier than regular Chianti Classico, yeah. typically. No, right? gen- generally speaking, you know, this is probably 2X. Yeah. Um, but some of the res- Chianti Classico reservists can get up there. Can get up there, yeah. And, and compete in this kind of price level. But uh, anyway. Always, always exceptions when it comes to pricing on wines, for sure. But generally speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So today we pulled out a wine from uh, Il Poggione. A 2010, so we're going baller wine now. Yeah. I mean, we're getting a little age here. Great vintage. A Brunello de Maltalcino. Mm. So how, Mike, how the heck do I know what is a Brunello de Maltalcino? Like, awesome. What, what yeah. is that? Like, what does that even mean? So, you know, out this is in Tuscany, first of all. So, you know, Scotland asked, what are some Sangiovese-based wines outside of Chianti Classico? This is, and, you know, Scotland, we know you know Brunello, right? Like, this this is the, sure. you know, the, the big three from Italy, Brunello, Barolo, and Amarone. Most people into wine know about those. So, but we wanted to pop this and get the discussion started with it. So, Montalcino is the town. It's a little village. It's on top of a hill. And. And there's uh, it's higher elevation. We're south of the Chianti Classico region. And because of the elevation here and, um, you know, it's got its own unique microclimate. It's a little bit different in terms of the climate and the topography from Chianti. They grow Sangiovese here, but it's a little different than the Sangiovese you get in Chianti. The local name for it is Brunello. So that's where the name comes from. Um, it is also known as Sangiovese Grosso. Um, basically, it is a smaller berry with a thicker skin. It, you, you get like a more robust, bigger, fuller style of Sangiovese um, from Montalcino. Um, so Brunello de Montalcino is its own DOCG. You have to follow very strict guidelines in order to call your wine Brunello de Montalcino. Um, a lot of that has to do with the aging, but first and foremost, these have to be 100% Sangiovese. You cannot blend anything in with the Brunello, the Sangiovese, and call it Brunello de Montalcino. So you know you're getting a 100% pure expression of Sangiovese, where in previous episodes we've talked about Chianti, where you can blend in Cabernet and Merlot and um, local varieties and Syrah, like international grapes. Here it's 100% Brunello, and the minimum aging requirements is four years before it can be released to market. There's also a minimum barrel aging requirement for Brunello, so it has to be aged in wood, where Chianti Classico necessarily doesn't, Reserva does, um, but that's these are some big differences between these two regions, even though they're both based on the same grape. And you've brought up a couple of reasons why it's pricier in terms of that aging requirement. Yeah. That's a lot of time to just sit on inventory. Right. right. And it costs a lot of money to have wood barrels versus, say, a concrete vat. Right. right? Which a lot of modern Chianti Classicos have gone to quite a bit of concrete aging mm-hmm. um, where you get more minerality, uh, you know, from that that aging process. Yeah. The nice part about Brunello is it ages not only does it age well, but you should age it. Yes. It it needs that time. And 2010 was a fantastic vintage. Really good vintage. A bit like Barolo in that regard, where you have these minimum aging requirements for Barolo for Nebbiolo. When they come out, 
they're, you know, uh, kind of ready to drink. If you want to, you know, grab a, few, a number of bottles and check in on one right away to get a feel for the vintage, that's okay. I would say decant for sure for like a good hour or two or longer. Um, they're going to be much more tannic than Chianti as well. And uh, as a matter of fact, like when you're blind tasting, Barolo and Brunello can really get confusing. They, they can really... Um, appear to be similar. They look uh, pretty similar in color. Um, they're both aged in barrel. They're both bigger and tannic. Um, I think Barolo has higher acid. That's a that's kind of a marker. But otherwise, I've definitely called my fair share of Barolo's Brunello and vice versa. I, I really think that floral note out of both wines can really get you too. Because I mean, this is strong floral right out of the bottle here. God, this is so beautiful, man. I'm so like, thank you for popping this. This came out of Pete's cellar today. Um, I mean, it's been open for just, I don't know, 15 minutes maybe at the most. And it is just absolutely singing. You know, when we get beyond the red fruit flavors, uh, of course, you're going to look for things like dried cherries and cherry skin and cranberry, um, these high tune red fruits. But the 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 florality the the um aromatics of this wine are absolutely gorgeous there's a lot of like sweet tobacco right now right off of the the bat for me and you're definitely going to find more uh you know minerality these tend to be a lot older vines that these producers are working with and uh when they're when they're you know harvesting the fruit they're actually using their best grapes to make Brunello. But there's another wine in this region that if you don't want to spend these big bucks but still get a nice 100% Sangiovese, you can look for what's called Rosso di Montalcino. Rosso di Montalcino is kind of like the baby sister of Brunello. People have called it that over time. It's a little bit lighter, easier drinking. It has a one-year aging requirement, but it doesn't have any wood aging requirements. So some producers will just do tank and it makes it very fresh and lively and bright. Some might do a little barrel. And again, these are minimums. So, you know, you got to kind of go producer to producer. You know, some might age their Brunello longer than four years. Some might age their Rosso for a couple years. And, um, you know, you can find producers that make a pretty serious Rosso de Montalcino that maybe, uh, you know, you're paying around 20 bucks for. Um, Brunello's, I think, you know, 50 is kind of on average and they definitely can go up from there. Um, so, you know, I would, I would definitely explore, explore this region for, um, you know, outside of Chianti. Yeah, I would agree. Um, you know, there's a corollary kind of question here in a way, right? Because scores come up a lot and I did have a friend, I forgot to put it on our little sheet, but I did have a friend paying me and he's like, you don't have to use my name, but you know, how do I use scores? You guys are always talking about the score doesn't matter. So how do I use them? I think this is a, a fantastic example of that, um, this Il Pogione 2010, because it had some big scores, right? Yeah. 97 yeah. or something advocate. But I remember specifically the quote that made me want to buy this particular wine. Yeah. And it came from a 94 point score. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the release price on this wine is about 80 bucks, 85 bucks. Yeah. Um, I didn't pay quite that much, but that's the release price. So to give you perspective, right? Sure. 94 points from a very respected uh, Italian reviewer, Antonio Galloni. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But here's what he wrote at the beginning 
And this is what made me buy this wine. Go. Il Poggioni's 2010 Brunello di Montalcino is the single best value in top flight Brunello di Montalcino. If there was any doubt about that, this tasting makes it clear that Il Poggioni belongs right up there along with the best of them. Wow. I mean, why, I don't care if he gave that 88. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter right. what the number is. At right. that moment, the passion from Galoni and the statement of this is the best value. Okay, I, that's the goal. Yeah. Right? That's that's his number, right? That's just him assigning this number. Correct. So that makes me sort of calibrate, okay, a 94 from Antonio Galoni is pretty heavy duty, as it really should be if we are going to talk about scores like that. And I think you find too many other critics doling out those numbers for wines that aren't quite, you know, as <laughs> compared to the Il Poggioni we're drinking, they're not on the same level at all. So, right. Um, you know, you got to get past the number, I guess, is the moral of the story yeah. and into the critic who's assigning that number. Right. And and even more so, look at the pros. Like, OK, so you can't really do that with James Suckling because he's not really that kind of reviewer. It's for him. It is about the number and then a few descriptors. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If you see more than two sentences from Suckling, then to me, that tells me, OK, he's passionate about this wine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When Galoni says things like that, it means something, I right? Agree. I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, so I just read what the reviews are. I couldn't have told you what the score was, but I, I knew that he said it. That's why I wanted to go get the exact quote, right? Mm-hmm. But that's how you use reviewers. You calibrate your palate to their palate. You calibrate their scoring system, if you will, to how you perceive the wine. And you read the pros. And when you get the write-up, that speaks to you, that's where you go, right? Boom. The other piece of that, I want to just real caution. Like I will see, uh, often hear from people where they'll see a, a review that says, oh, this one, this wine has licorice in it. Right. I don't like and licorice. And be, be turned off to the wine because right. somebody said that. Right. So a couple of things on that. You might be. I have no idea mm-hmm. if you'll be turned off on how that wine tastes. But remember, this is somebody's perception of hints or notes yeah. it's not like they took a pack of twizzlers and put it into the vat right to go from right? right some maceration on some black licorice that right would be pretty nasty it's just it's just that right so yeah. to me it's like how do i find the passion beneath what these you know these reviewers are doing yeah right whether it's lisa parati brown or it's antonio galoni or jeb dunnick i don't i want to find that passion right and for some you've got to parse it out Jeb Dunnick is a really good example. He's prone to hyperbole. Yeah. So you got to get through that hyperbole to understand what he's really talking about. Um, and that's not a bad thing because Jeb helps sell a lot of wine mm-hmm. and he's got a brand that, that obviously has embraced that. Right. As he brings on other reviewers, it'll be interesting to see if they embrace that or if they go a different way. Antonio Galoni is another, I mean, so he started Venice and He's brought on people like Neil Martin who completely disagree with him about scores and write-ups. Like there or Steven Tanzer. Mm-hmm. Um like they're they're miles apart and he'll publish two two reviews from two reviewers that one will give 91 and one will give a 95. Right. Right? Good for him because now you can really start to hone in and calibrate and and see what you like. Yeah. So I mean, I think Venice is doing a great job. Advocates obviously been the gold standard for a long time and they've got a, a lot of reviewers there now. Um, 
you know, Wine Spectator is a little stingier in general. Um, but again, their write-ups, though, are very short, but that's their MO. Mm-hmm. So you're just not going to get big write-ups from them. They're two sentences, you know, maybe a production and a drink date. That's right. it. Right. Some, right. Of the, some of the write-up is just info, like technical info versus passionate yeah. writing about the wine. Yeah. So to me, that's how you use it. Cool. So it. N- nice little corollary. Um, now to segue back to <laughs> any other places for Sangiovese for for uh, us to look at. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, within Tuscany, you definitely need to also explore Vino Nobile de Montepucciano. This is not the Montepucciano grape. Um, you, you might be familiar with Montepucciano d'Abruzzo. This is another town in Tuscany called Montepucciano and uh, Vino Nobile de Montepucciano, the noble wine of Montepucciano. It's Sangiovese based. It's a little closer to Chianti in style where they can blend a little bit. And it does have a little bit stricter aging requirements. To me, it's in between Chianti and Brunello is Vino Nobile. And they call Sangiovese Prunolo Gentile. You'll never really see that on a label or anything. You can just think of it as Sangiovese. But um, I think that's kind of, you know, right in the middle in terms of style um, between Chianti and Brunello. So those, those are kind of the big three. You may, if you're in a specialty bottle shop, see something like Morlino di Scansano. This is another DOC from, or maybe DOCG from Tuscany that is Sangiovese based. And then I would, one of my favorite wines, dude, and I love saying this is Rosso Piceno from, oh, yeah. from the Marche. All yeah. right. So across on the other side on the Adriatic is, uh, the Marche, uh, Marque, is, you know, like Tuscany, it's a it's a it's a region. It's more known for Verdicchio for the white wines over there. That's just, this is where you find Verdicchio de Castelli de Jesi, but they have a red wine appellation called Rosso di uh, Rosso Piceno, and that is a blend of Sangiovese and Montepulciano, the Montepulciano grape. Those can be tremendous values and can actually also age in the medium term like maybe five to eight years uh somewhere in there so those are definitely more off the beaten path and harder to find but again like a more specialty shop you should be able to find something like that um and those are fun wines so um you know experiment with some blends of sangiovese also nice yeah i like it that's a great a great kind of group of wines to try and i'm with you there's some fun fun stuff out there and Go ahead and explore other expressions around the world. Sure. You know, because it's becoming, I mean, we say international grapes, but almost everything is becoming an international grape at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Like the the wine world is changing before our eyes. Like, you know, like your kid growing up in front of you, like you, you got to look back at five years to appreciate the difference and see what's going on. But I agree with you on that, man. You know, like you can find Sangiovese from up and down the West coast of the United States and some good versions of it too. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to pick another question. How's that sound? Sounds great. Scotland. Thanks again, man. And I know you submitted another question, but I think we're going to do another episode that features that. And yeah, uh, why don't, why don't we just, yeah. He, he also asked, how do you find value in Burgundy? mm -hmm. We've done a Burgundy episode. I don't know. Um, (laughs) That's the answer. Yeah. I don't know, man. (laughs) We've tried to address it, but I think that your question has got us, itching to do another burgundy episode and dive into that and try to talk it out because it's tough 
it's really tough. It almost like doesn't exist value in Burgundy. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, I think, I think we just need to like do another Burgundy episode. Those have been well-received in the past and it's something we can go back to, um, an unlimited amount of times and never, never get through it all. So Burgundy is vast and complex and deserves more attention. All right. So let's take a a little simpler question next. All right. This coming from our friend, Paolo by Vuma, uh, on Instagram, why is it called white wine, but the color is yellow? <laughs> There's actually an answer to this. All right. I love this answer. But before we, we delve into a serious answer, can we just for a second, you know, if we haven't learned anything in the past year and a half, can we can we start looking beyond color here, whether it's white, <laughs> yellow, red, pink? Can yes. we just get into the character of the wine and that's and, and leave it at that? Well, I think it's important that you do see the color and the differences <laughs> and that you accept them and try to embrace them. And also, you know, hey, Paolo, Paolo is from Piedmont, Italy. All right. He's Italian um, through and through. He's an American citizen, so he definitely has a big dose of the USA in him. But, you know, when you're over in Italy or any listeners that have been over there, you know, are, have the wine lists at restaurants and trattorias, are they traditionally set up the same as America? Like, does it say Bianco Vino, you know? Oh, yeah. As far as the subject and then list wines underneath? Is it a little different? Do they say something different? Um, I think, you know, in today's day and age, you can have fun with that. You can, you know, kind of like wine styles, right, Pete? Yeah. Where it's more like, you know, oaky and buttery, um, you know, unoaked whites or, right. or, or you know, unoaked wines or sweet or, you know, whatever. Right. Like based yeah. on the style, the character. Yeah, absolutely. I think you could do that for sure. And I think that that's kind of how we might look at it. Yeah. Um, actually, I think there was a question on Facebook about that. We'll have to circle back in a minute. I think Bill asked us how we would set up a wine list. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So let's circle back to that because cool. that could be a fun. That, that could be an episode. man. Yep. The that Glass could, Hole Bistro. Yeah. It could be a, a whole nother episode. Yeah. So, yeah, we will. We will circle back on that. Yeah, so uh, why is it ye- called white, not yellow? It, there's actually a really simple answer, probably. Nobody would know this for sure. My guess would be because you press the grapes and the juice is clear, but that's kind of the same for red wine also until you put it in contact with the skins. But It's, it's actually much simpler. Really? Yellow was the color of disease. Oh, Nobody would well, call anything yellow. Like, oh. go back to Roman times. Yellow was a color of disease. It was always an ailment. I think... Jean, like vin jaune from the Jura. Jaune is yellow, right? In French, in French, I believe. I don't know. I didn't take. And that's that's because it's produced in this very deliberate oxidized style. And when you oxidize a wine, it darkens. You know, it starts heading towards the brown spectrum. And to get to brown, you got to kind of pass through yellow first. So is it J E U N E? J A U N E. Oh, J A. Sorry, I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, but like when, you know, like there's the category of orange, it wine, is yellow. right? It is yellow. Yeah. Vinjon, yellow wine. Um, yeah. 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 So I think that that's a, an exception that makes the rule, right? right. Most right. people aren't going to say that. And I mean, in modern times, yellow kind of look, I mean, my six year old probably, say, that looks like pee pee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then I'm, I'm going to go with the final, my final part of that is just tradition. That's what they started with and that's yeah. what they kept. Yeah. Right. 
But I think it's actually an interesting question. It is an interesting question. That you probably could write a book about as you dive into like tracing this back. Yeah. Maybe a booklet. Maybe an Amazon, uh, like a Kindle single. So There's, there's something in there. So, Paulo, when, when we post about the episode on social, give us the 411 on how the wines are typically listed or talked about in Italy. There is a no list. They just tell you what you're going to drink. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, all right. I'm sure that's spot on. <laughs> yeah, pretty. I, I think so. Um, I, by, by the way, I need a big fucking plate of prosciutto and salami with this brunello that we're sipping on while we're going through these man it is so delicious it almost has like this very clean pure cured meat it does aspect in the wine i mean for 11 years old this is so vibrant (laughs) it's so vibrant and so much tannin so yeah we we coravin this one so we'll we'll revisit this again soon but Mm -hmm. man pretty pretty wine um all right so let's go with uh, the next question we're going to say are comes from Matthew Parvis on Instagram. What are your thoughts on helping friends, family get over the intimidation factor of wine? I feel like people opt out of learning about wine because of some perceived shortcoming or lack of knowledge. So I think that the first answer to that is have them listen to that wine pod. Yes, that's first and foremost. I think that I think that's the number one thing. Um, my second part to that is when you're pouring somebody wine that doesn't know wine, don't act like a douchebag. <laughs> right. That's my other big piece of advice. Yep. What do you got, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> I think that wraps it up. You know, <laughs> right there. Um, you know, it, I I think that anything worth learning about and worth getting into takes a little bit of work. And I, I, I just feel like overall, you know, the human race is a little bit lazy <laughs> that, you know, it can get, it can just get intimidating in terms of like, Oh, I don't want to put any effort into this. I just want, I just want a glass of wine. Well, and you don't have, look, I think that that you don't have to want to know a lot about wine and yeah. understand if you enjoy it or not. One of the ways that I actually did this early on in my wine career is I would invite people that didn't know about wine over for a blind tasting. And I would show them at the end of the blind tasting, I didn't really know that much more than them. Yeah. I really don't. I mean, yeah. when when you get down to it, maybe I got old world versus new world right more often than not, but it stops about there. Like, I'm not you, Mike, having trained with a lot of blind wines. But even then, my guess is if you sat down in a room today, right, having kind of not honed that skill for a while, my guess is you'll know more. Yeah. And then once you know about the wine, you could explain it. But just pure tasting it blind, you're not going to know that. I mean, it's not like, you know, a thousand times more than somebody else drinking it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you should enjoy wine and taste wine first and foremost, get into a book or something later on down the road. I think blind tasting is perfect, a perfect way to get over the intimidation where, you know, have a few people over and get some wines that are extremely different from one another. If you want to do whites, do like a Sauvignon Blanc, an Oaky Chardonnay and a semi-sweet Riesling. 
right? And taste them blind, serve them blind to, to everybody and just talk about some of the basic differences, you know, and make sure that they know there are no wrong answers with this either, you know? Um, I think my, a lot of my experience with getting people out of their comfort zone is just you know, kind of pushing them in the deep end a little bit. Like, hey, what's one thing you smell or taste in this wine? And there's no wrong answer. Like, I always right. say that. Just, what do you got? You right. Know? Yeah, um, I, I agree. And so when, when I would do these tastings, my first question every time was, did you like the wine? Yeah. Why or why not? Yeah. Just tell me that. Basics. Right? And if you can start to explain why you don't like wine or you do like a wine, then you could start to pinpoint flavors and characteristics that you like. I'll give an example with this Il Pogione. If you're not really into red wine, you're going to drink this and go, oh my God, it's too dry. It's it's no drier than most other red wine, but it's got big tannins. People, of course, associate that drying sensation on the tongue with a dry wine. So it gives me an opportunity now to educate. Hence why I asked for a plate of prosciutto. Right. (laughs) And, um, you know, even for us, you know, professionals or people that have tasted just thousands of wines, you know, this this definitely commands like a little protein or a little piece of cheese or something to go with it. Yeah, I'm almost positive also to your earlier point that I would have called this Barolo. Right on. It's just so, yeah, so many markers of Barolo on here. I mean... I think I, I think I would have mistaken it, which is a perfect example, but it's not one I'm going to just sit down and drink. I want food with this and that's great. Right. And so you could, I think those are the types of things that you could do to help people kind of walk through why they like something and why they don't. Right. But if they don't want to learn and they just want to enjoy, I think that's great too. So you, you have that. Yeah, for sure. Like if, if we were drinking a big juicy Napa cab right now, I think the dryness would be the same. Right. Right. But it would be perceived differently because you have so much, you would have so much more upfront fruit and this new oak that gives it like this more like silkiness to it. Um, just more polished flavors. Right. And, right. And, and, uh, but the dryness is the same, but this is more like earthy and dried fruit and that tannin and higher acid. Um, I, I think that just comes across a little different, even though those are both the same in terms of the residual sugar, which is going to be almost zero. Right. And that's what dry is. It's the residual sugar content. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's uh, a matter of fact, if you had these side by side, my guess is they'd call this one dry and the other one sweet and they're not, it's all perception, right. On ripeness and and such. So you're just describing the fruit. So it's like without even knowing you're, you're actually tasting and describing wine correctly. Right. And I would always say, yeah, you're right. And here's why, and here's what that really means though. Right. And so it's kind of fun. And I think the corollary here from, uh, from Mr. Parvis is great. What's the biggest mistake people make when it comes to pairing wine with food? Now I'm going to turn to you for this one first. Yeah, I I mean, I think just overpowering the dish with with a wine for just kind of like pairing 101, right? Just think about the the food that you're preparing and try to match that with a wine. If it's a it's a, a very heavy dish, you're doing, you know, like a big ribeye steak, then go with a bigger red. Uh, that could be the Brunello we're drinking right now, or it could be like a Napa Cab. You don't want to do something too light, but if you're serving like, you know, uh, a pork tenderloin or something like that, that, you know, a big tannic cab 
you know, something leaner like that, that doesn't have a lot of fat, you know, a big tannic cab can completely overpower. And, you know, you want harmony when it comes to food and wine pairing. There's, there's never like, I mean, the elusive perfect pairing, like it might be out there and maybe you'll stumble across it by accident. And when you do, that's like some of the most fun you can have with drinking wine where you're like, oh my gosh, this is, there's something magical happening here, but to deliberately pair that up can be difficult. And I think you just want to think of having a harmonious balance where the food that you're eating and the wine that you're drinking, one isn't going to outplay the other. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And and there's so many different ways. I don't want to get into how to pair food and wine right yeah. now. I, I think that's actually an episode we should be, we should do soon. Yeah, I um, agree. Pairing food and wine kind of 101. Yeah. Maybe that's a good one for the fall as we head into the holidays and hopefully actually entertaining people this year. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I think the biggest mistake outside of kind of what you're talking about is when you have a more delicate protein pairing the protein versus the sauce or crust. Yeah. You know, yeah. so for example, blackened trout doesn't necessarily get the same pairing, uh, if you will, as maybe a, a sauteed, you know, trout. Here, you here's, know? A, here's a great example, dude. We brought a bottle of Bialy Zinfandel to a restaurant that allowed like, it was like a $10 corkage or something. My wife got blackened trout with a mustard sauce. Oh, Perfect. You know what? That was one of those like walk into it backwards pairings where it was like, holy shit, this works really, really well together where you would never really consider like a big, ripe, high alcohol Zinfandel with trout. Right. But because of the prep, it worked like beautifully. And that's also red wine with fish. Right. Hey, you know, we got to get beyond the white wine with fish, red wine with meat thing too. That has nothing to do with it. Another... Um, experience I had was with um, a Dave Finney wine, an Orange Swift wine, the abstract. Oh, yeah. That was paired up with an arugula salad. And it had some other veggies in it. I can't exactly remember. But the pepperiness of arugula, the natural pepperiness, went so well with the pepper of the wine. And the wine actually did not overpower the salad. So that was another one that I was like really surprised by. Uh, pleasantly surprised by so you just never know um so anyway we do need to get into it gets technical like you got to start thinking about acidity and sweetness i would also say like if you're having spicier food you want to have lower alcohol which typically can lead to a sweeter wine but you don't want high alcohol with hot food right so it could be like muscadet which doesn't have sweetness that could go really well with some spicier foods or Gruner Veltliner or something. But, you know, you can get into some sweeter Rieslings if you really like spice, if you're really going to crank up the heat with some peppers or some, you know, classic like Indian fare and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you start getting into like, I mean, we could probably sit here all day and name our favorite food and wine pairings, yeah. right? I mean, that just don't make sense. Like fried chicken and champagne, yeah. right? Which yeah. is one of the most amazing things on earth. And we can, you know, I think this is going to, we've gotten a lot of questions that are, are inspiring episodes at this point. Yeah, right on. Um, but I really love the idea that one, I'm not sure there's technically a mistake with pairing wine because you, you should drink what you like and just know that if you drink them at the same, if you drink and eat at the same time, it could, one could overpower the other, um, or 
the wine could get lost if it's too light with a big dish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but have fun and experiment. I mean, look, if you can afford it and you've got the wherewithal, go buy two or three wines that you think would pair with something and pour them. Yeah. And then just try them. I mean, that's, I think some of the most fun I've ever had is just having another couple or two over picking two or three, four or five different wines to pair with different things, pouring them out and seeing what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that, that's about fun, right? Cause For there's sure. no right answer. Yep. Um, so yep, not yeah. at all. And you know, if you're trying to, a new wine from Europe, let's say, uh, take a second and look up the local cuisine from the region that the wine comes from. You yeah. Know, that's another little piece of advice too. Yeah. Well, I think a, a good jump, uh, on the next question comes from, uh, I don't know who, what is him or his or her name would be, but Jay Fonte four, uh, from Instagram. What's a good anniversary wine for dry red wine and dry champagne? Well, Dude, how I many think, times have we gotten this question? I, th- right? I think we got one in our glass right now. Yeah. <laughs> This, this like Brunello di Montalcino, only because it's right in front of our face, pops in my head for a red wine because it's, um, it's so prized. It's one of the world's best wines. And if you're, you know, celebrating a milestone occasion, you know, you typically want to pair that with something that's, that's also kind of top shelf and memorable. And um, so for a dry red, you know, look no further than Brunello. Nice. What do you got for, for champagne? Where are you going? Champagne, champagne. So, you know, I can give some examples that I've used uh, for anniversaries where I just love Tattinger, man. Tattinger Brut. Uh, Also, Louis Roederer Brut. These are very affordable when it comes to champagne. 50 bucks, give or take. Maybe you'll find it on sale somewhere. Maybe it'll be a little more somewhere else, but, you know, give or take. Um, Champagne can get complex when we get into vintage and micro producers and growers and things like that. But, you know, I think just sticking with some of the, the big name, um, houses, you know, Bollinger comes to mind. Um, I think those are great. Yeah, I agree. I, I, we get these kinds of questions in a retail environment often, and it's never an easy answer. I mean, like the examples you gave are perfect. And it, and it requires like, I wish we, if we had Jay Fonte on the line, yeah, it requires a little conversation with the guest. Exactly. And it would be, okay, well, what's your budget? But the bottom line is choose something you're both going to enjoy. That's really what it comes down to. So if right. you both like experimenting with bigger reds that you haven't had and you've never had Brunello, awesome. Grab that Brunello. And Maybe you want something juicier, but you don't want to be in California. So maybe we bring you over to Spain and grab, you know, a bottle from like El Nido or something mm-hmm. big and juicy and, and upfront that's drinkable right away. Um, that doesn't need some aging. Right. Yeah. The, I think that the other piece of this too, when you have a shop that you trust and we've said this a thousand times i know on the show we keep harping it but if you have a shop or a person that you trust and you could explain to them what you're looking for then maybe you could get away from the bigger houses like you've talked about which are tried and true yep like you're never going to go wrong yep but you could try some grower champagnes you know mm-hmm. maybe you end up with a pierre peters or a or a you know marque brar or jean le lamont mm-hmm. right and you end up with something that's really different and really special yep um the other piece that i'll say on that 
is, you know, try to find something like if you're going to be eating and you're going to put this with something, make sure that it will pair pretty properly versus just enjoying it. Right. So if you're just going to sit down and, and enjoy a glass without the food, maybe it's after dinner or whatever, um, maybe in front of the fireplace, you're getting, you want a little romance. I'm not judging. You do what you got to do. Yeah. Right. You get the wine, but make sure you're both just going to love it. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you do that, it's going to be great. Finally, most of the reds you choose and most of the whites you choose are going to be dry or most of the champagne. Yeah. If it doesn't say brute, think for a second, right? On the champagne and on the reds, as long as it's not like, I don't know, Amarone or something, you know, on the higher end there, it, they're pretty much all going to be dry Yep, from that perspective. So I don't know. Great question though, because this is, this is the, one of the most consistent questions we get. I would ask, you know, have, have you, have you and your partner traveled to wine country before? Yeah. Um, where have you enjoyed, you know, like my wife and I had a memorable trip to California on our honeymoon. So for our anniversary, maybe we'd like to drink something from one of the wineries we visited where it has that special connection too. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of different, uh, you know, experiences in your life that could play into what you're going to choose or what would be recommended to you for, for something special for like an anniversary. Yeah. All right. Next, we're going Love it. to KK Photo, Advent- Photo Venture. KK Photo Adventure. Photo Venture. KK Photo, Photo Venture. Venture. Yeah. Yes. Took, yeah. Kenny yeah. Kim. Yeah. Kenny Kim on Instagram. If you're not following Kenny Kim, you're doing life wrong. Yes. Because the pictures are amazing. Professional and- photographer, um, weddings mostly. And um, yeah. yeah, but he just takes pictures of his everyday life but everything and, and everything else it makes me sure. want to go do things like eat more but like how he pays his bills i believe is through like getting hired for oh yeah house, right yeah you need to do that yeah so also maybe check him out from that perspective but anyway he asks, what is the standard pour for a glass of wine at restaurants right on now you've worked at many restaurants i have not but i have a thought on what it probably is and should be but i'm i don't know should i go first or you want to go first on this take it man you go first yeah my guess is that a standard wine pour is is most of the time going to be five ounces getting five glasses of wine out of the 750 milliliter bottle with a little bit left over just in case Mm -hmm. Uh, and my guess on that is you are trying to recoup your cost within the first glass and a half, two glasses max, and then everything else is going to be profit for you because wine does go bad. Yeah. And if you're a legit restaurant, you shouldn't be serving wine that's kind of gone past its prime. Yeah. I do believe that there are going to be some restaurants that will go with a six ounce pour, um, maybe even up to six and a half ounce, getting four glasses out uh, of each one. And that probably would be not as fine of dining would be my guess. And they're trying to recoup their cost on the very first glass mm-hmm. and then get all profit kind of after that. I'm adding in this profit piece just so you guys understand out there that when you're buying a glass of wine, you're typically going to see a glass of wine that's going to be very near retail price on on the shelf for a bottle. It, it'll be very pretty close, mm-hmm. closer than you think some of the times and sometimes maybe even more depending on on the wine. Yeah. Uh, but you could probably guess wholesale or what they're paying for the wine. 
based on that first glass price. Yeah, you're spot on, man. Um, when I first learned, uh, you know, about pricing wine, I was buying, you know, helping out with the wine list at Timponi's in my very early days. I can tell you exactly what we did. So, you know, first of all, five ounce pour was the standard. Yep. Um, it's a nice glass of wine. You get five per bottle. And let's say that we bought the bottle from the wholesaler for 25 bucks. All right. That that's a pretty nice bottle of wine, a $25 wholesale. I would say you're paying like pretty much mid thirties in a retail shop to sort of set the stage. So think about some retail wines you would buy for 35 bucks. There's a lot of good stuff out there. So $25, what we would do is divide by five, five glasses per bottle. So a glass of wine cost the restaurant five bucks. Then we would mark that up two and a half times. So we would sell that for twelve fifty on oh, the list. So I was exact on the two glasses to recoup your cost. One one glass was twelve fifty. Two glasses would recoup the cost exactly. This now think about getting a thirty five dollar bottle of like if if you went somewhere and found Brienne Day single vineyard Pinot Noir for like thirteen bucks a glass, it that would be a dream come true. For, for an example here that just comes to mind today when I'm when I and then when I moved up to Chicago it got way different yeah I was gonna say it's way more in way Chicago. fucking different so the model here is everybody wants cheap in for the most part you know outside of your very fine dining establishments um, the cheaper the better because they they're looking to pay like nine or ten bucks and sell it for ten or eleven per glass so glass one gets the 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 bottle cost back, and then you have four glasses that are pure profit. And that's where restaurants make their money nonetheless. But I've always been more of a fan of, you know, maybe you'd sell a little bit more, a little more volume if it was a little less. I mean, you go out to restaurants today, and honestly, you know, outside of bullshit chains like, you know, Red Lobster and the Olive Garden – you're you're gonna be paying like fourteen to sixteen dollars per glass. I avoid that's that's, that's and that's on the lower end yeah. side, right? Like, like I mean, in my example, you're pro- of the twenty five dollar bottle. You're probably paying like twenty two or twenty five even. Yeah, you're you're hitting um, why I avoid glass pours like the plague. Yeah, I just don't do them. Yeah, period. I I'd rather order a bottle, share it with somebody nearby if we're not gonna finish it, than and have a fresh bottle of wine open yeah. in, in front of me. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's, I think that's about the standard pour. I think that's how they kind of come up with the price points. Yeah. I mean, but I've also seen where, uh, I, I've seen many times where I know, to your point, a wine that's seven bucks wholesale is nine ninety nine or ten ninety nine on a shelf and it's selling for 12 bucks a glass. Right. I mean, it's insane. Right. Um, I agree. And I, I think it, it absolutely depends on the restaurant. And when you go to the finer dining places that you can try multiple good like wines in one sitting, that's worth it. But, yeah. you know, to just drink a uh, very standard that you can get in any store, anywhere, a uh, glass of wine and pay, you know, 15 to $20 for the glass, it's much, there's much more value just going for the bottle. Yeah, for sure. For bottles. All right. Next question, I'm going to H State 1029, and they ask, why does it take so long for wine to ship to my house? 
there is a company. Uh, we'll just say, I mean, should we say it? Yeah, why not? All right, Wine Access that I really love and always great, uh, get great quality wine, but it takes three to four weeks to get to me, while Wine.com takes th- two to three days. All right, so I could start to tackle this one because this was kind of my bailwick. And I, I think so. And and H State, thank you for the support. She's been a listener of the pod for since the get go, oh, pretty much. Fantastic. Um, I'm not sure where she lives. I want to say Georgia, but somewhere like I think down in the south. And um, so, quick shout out to to thank her, and she also was happy to disclose that company. Okay. Um, right. And I think that would that was going to give us a better. Uh, you know, we can answer the question with a little more um, accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. Right. So here's, here's uh, let's talk about wine shipping just in general, a little bit. Uh, One, if it's the summer and people are shipping you wine and it's not temperature controlled all the way down to you, stop ordering from them immediately, please. That's the alarm going off that your wine is possibly going to get ruined. That's, if you like vinegar a lot, that's a really good recipe, heat and wine, right? So that said, wine.com is a, uh, they're churning out, they're just churning out shipping wines, right? I mean, like it's big. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much bigger they are than everybody else, but they're huge. I don't know either. I, I went on the, the Spain trip with Wilfred Wong, WW, who writes the reviews for wine.com. And from what I gathered from him is, you know, they do it. They have like multiple warehouses around the country. They do. So that that could play a role in terms of being able to ship quicker. Right. It it does. And also um, wine.com is shipping to you stuff that they literally have in stock all the time. So you're not buying some rare wine that's sitting in a cellar like happens with wine access where it may, may take two to three weeks just to get the wine to them to ship out. And then they ship in a temperature-controlled way that's a little different than wine.com. And so they will, um, they're will they adding packs and, and, and stuff to make sure that it gets to people in the best way possible. And I'm not saying wine.com doesn't. I think they're very careful about their shipping, but it's regional versus spot, right? So it's going to be different when it comes to temperature control and, yeah. and what you're capable of doing. So there, you want to be sure that you understand that kind of that piece of it. The other piece is shipping in general has gotten longer. Yeah, we're just in a, an era where all of a sudden, you know, especially with COVID now, things are taking longer to ship. People have to be very careful when they're shipping you wine that they take all of that into account. So even if they're not waiting for a shipping window in terms of weather, they may just be waiting for somebody to pick it up or it may be out there longer. And now they've got to adjust how they're doing their temperature control measures with ice packs and, and such. I hear like patience, I think in this case is a really good thing. Yeah. So, and if, if you really, like she mentioned, she's getting some great quality wine. And if you think about how long it took to produce that bottle of that quality wine, you know, an extra couple weeks might be worth it in order to get it to you in the shape that it needs to be in. Yeah. Like not ruin it and stuff like that. And I also think, and I'm not saying, you know, our listener here thinks this, but I think in general, people are so used to hopping on Amazon, click, click, 
it's you know prime delivery and it's there the next day and that's how it works with wine too yeah well i mean and notice that who's not a big name in the wine game is amazon yeah they have tried over and over to get this right and they have not been able to so shout out to people like wine access and last bottle and wine.com who can get this consistently right to make it a profitable revenue stream and the last piece i'll say is wine shipping has increased exponentially with covid so you're you're also having more choices than ever not all of them good because a lot of people don't really know how to ship wine Mm -hmm. they don't do it well and you know it's it's a struggle so be careful you know but be patient for something like the quality that wine access is gonna gonna get to you and even a wine.com who you know, has a diff has different shipping models, right? You could pay like to be uh, almost like a prime time type member, right? Yep. Uh, to just get free shipping and and such. Then that's the last thing I w- I do actually want to talk about. Shipping's not free, regardless of what <laughs> Amazon has made you think. Right. Shipping's not free. So if a small retailer that you really trust and you want to get stuff shipped to you from them charges you twenty five bucks for the case understand they're probably still losing money yeah to ship a case of wine across the country is anywhere from 25 to 50 dollars just for the shipping alone yeah they're they're gonna they're gonna lose on the labor at the very least right there's a labor like maybe it costs them 25 and they just want to cover their costs but that's not the full cost but it's not that's just the cost of like the fedex or ups right right that's not Everything ship, else, the, the shipper, shipping, the material, I mean, right? Proper shipping material is going to be 6 to $12, depending on how you're doing it, how far it's got to go. There could be more if it's temperature control um, issues. Just be understanding. Like, it's not free. So you, I, I think you're going to see a lot more people charging for shipping yeah. going forward and kind of rebelling against Amazon and being clear, like, hey, this is why, this is why, this is what it costs me. Or even if they do give you free shipping, saying, look, we're giving you $35 off this order because it cost me 35 bucks to ship it to you mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just I just want to make it clear. Like it's <laughs> as small business people. It's not it's not free. Yeah. As biz, big business, they can cover it by volume sometimes. Yep. Right. But not small. Yeah. Especially like buying off of these retail sites where like a winery is going to maybe release in the spring and in the fall in order to ship at the proper temperatures and try to keep their costs down by maybe shipping in bulk or something. But the, the, the flash sites and the websites are open 24, seven, 365. Right. So someone can go on there in the middle of July when it's 120 degrees in Phoenix buying from a site in New York, let's say. Right. Right. So lots of stuff to consider there. Another yeah. episode perhaps. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we've got, this we've, is fun. we've got three more questions uh, that we're going to, we're going to get through here. Well, since we just talked about Amazon, I think this would be a good one. And it comes from my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron, um, who, what? who was sitting next to me. Yeah. <laughs> so this home. question comes from Mike's house. <laughs> Vino Mike's abode, if you will. Uh, what's up with the one wine filter on Amazon? So she saw this on Amazon and was like, what is going on with this thing? And so this is, this is a product on Amazon. I've got the uh, description right here. It's kind of funny. But what they are claiming is no more wine headaches. Oh, Enjoy wine again. Oh, thank God. Only pure wine. I think that's the name of it. Pure wine alleviates all 
of the most common side effects from drinking wine, headaches, stuffy nose, skin flush, next day hangovers, and upset stomach. It says that it removes histamines and sulfites. Uh, no other purifier removes both of these things. And it purifies all red, white, and sparkling wines without changing the natural flavor, aroma, or color of the wine. Convenient per glass. Um, easy to use, portable, fits in the purse or pocket. Like how they say purse. Disposable, one-time use. So each one of these things, you, you put it, you basically, it's this like, almost like a stir of a cocktail. You put it in your wine. They say that it needs to stay in there for at least three minutes. And then you pull it out. And on the other end of the stick is a cute little heart that snaps off. And you're supposed to put that on your stem as like your glass marker. So you know that's your glass of wine at a party or something like that. Um, and then it says, no more wasted wine. Imagine no longer having to throw away opened bottles of wine. The wand restores open oxidized wine to its natural state using patented Phoenix purification technology. What do you got there, Pete? I, I don't. <laughs> Just, I, I don't know who, who this person is who invented this. So, if you listen to this ever, my apologies, and I'm going to do my best to not cause libel slander whatever whatever it is when you speak that we're about to do <laughs> what in the actual fuck right are you are you kidding me does it remove the alcohol because 90 percent of your headaches are coming from the fucking alcohol yeah right i can just see people like oh i can drink two bottles of wine tonight and not be hung over tomorrow because i use the wand but and it's gonna you, cost and, you 10 individual wands i think they're you know you can like they're sold in like a 15 pack or I don't fucking know, but you know. and raising the wine from the dead. Okay, dude, yeah, I'm yeah, buying this yeah. shit and we're going to fine. I you, thought you, so too, man. You, let's do it. You want to do, you want to, you want to make these claims. Yeah. Then, then let's fucking go. Yes. Let's open a bottle and come back, you know, let it oxidize and let's check out what happens. I agree, man. Let's do it. So what's up with the wand, Aaron? We're going to fucking find out. I'm but not, it sounds like a ton of bullshit. I'm not doing it with El Poggioni, though. <laughs> not with El Poggioni. We're, you know, we're drinking this. So. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> How does it remove every component, but it just tastes... No okay. Yeah. What you ever chemicals? heard of such a thing? Y yes. I have seen other people say, pour it through this filter, and the yeah. same things happen. Yeah. Right? And I don't know if it happens or not, but you, you're telling me that you're going to put... Okay, forget it. Yeah. I, I think we'll just end it there, because I... You want to make the claim? Let's go. Yep. You want to come on the show? You've got two skeptics, and maybe we'll be proven wrong, hey. and, and you'll go through the roof. Would love to be proven wrong, but I I can't believe any of what they just claimed. No. Okay. Um. Next. Next. That was a good one, though. <laughs> I like it. All right. Schmidt on Twit. Schmidt on Twit. That's. Jeffrey uh, Smith is his name, by the way. Uh, but what I like is that must have been a Twitter handle at some point, right? It you is think, a Twitter right? handle. It still is. Yeah. Yep. And he's actually, so I went to high school with, with ah. this fine gentleman. Uh, we were in band together. Uh, great guy. Nerds. Nerds. And um, he's been a big supporter of the show. He, he great. loves wine. And um, he's reached out a few times in the past. But uh, this was his question for Ask, Ask the Glass Holes. And we called him Smitty. All right. That was his nickname. I like it. Maybe it still is. Cool. All right. He asks, is there a new wine hotspot on the rise? We all know Cali and Oregon, but where is the next place producing great wines? Mm. What, what are you thinking? 
Oh man, I would, I really think there has been so much potential with Texas and I don't know why it hasn't really blown up yet. You know, I, like we, we haven't tasted a Texas wine on this show, but I think it's kind of can be difficult to just go out to some of our favorite it shops is. and find one. It is very difficult. And yeah. it's, and it's domestic, right? So like what's going on? But I have visited Texas a few times. One time I went to Texom and dude, I can't tell you how good some of the wines I tried from there are, especially Italian varietals. There is something about the climate and soil of Texas that does really well with Italian grape varieties. And I was like, holy shit, this is very, very good. But they're really like whites and reds, like Fiano, some of the stuff we talked about on the Campania episode, especially like Southern Italy, like Alianico and uh, Falangina and just really cool shit like that down there. Um, it also does very, very well with Morvedra. Um, that's a main grape down there. So to me, that has like, you know, a bubbling volcano going on. And yeah. I feel like it's just, I don't know what needs to happen for the the top to blow off this thing. But I think that they need to do something to get on the stage with a, something like the Finger Lakes, which is a lot more accessible um, in various markets. It is, but it's still not all that well known. Not right? that well so, known. So, I, I mean, I, I feel like... And I think there's more potential with Texas than the Finger Lakes in terms of diversity. I fully agree. I think Virginia is another one. Right on. I think Virginia is kind of similar to Texas in that you've got a lot of diversity uh, that in terms of climate, in terms of uh, soil and uh, topography, right? So you can get a lot of different types of wines to work out of Virginia. And I've had several Virginia wines having done a race, you know, down there. Mm -hmm. And it was great. I mean, they're very good. Uh, they do really well with kind of, I mean, actually similar things to Finger Lakes for sure. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like dry Riesling and, and some of those. But yeah, I think that that but could... But they, they do Bordeaux grapes pretty well they too, They do right? Bordeaux grapes phenomenally. So like yeah. Cabernets, Merlot, blends, things yeah, like that. Yeah, they do. Uh, I didn't have any Rhone stuff uh, out of there, but I, I think that's great. And, you know, you mentioned Oregon and California. Never sleep on Washington. I know it's readily available now, mm -hmm. but don't sleep on that. And if you want to just kind of go up from Washington, the Okanagan Valley yeah. and British Columbia, they can be a little pricey. But let me tell you, those wines are phenomenal. Very, very good quality there. And as global warming continues, like moving a little bit further north is going to probably be a trend. Yeah. My last two are international. Okay. Um, that I'm going to, I'm going to get out of the U S but for the first one, I'm not going to go that far. The Valle de Guadalupe, uh, mm. in Mexico, I think is going to really heat up. Mm. <laughs> not no pun intended. <laughs> uh, I just think that they're producing phenomenal wines when we went to um, uh, one of Rick Bayless's restaurants, almost the entire list yeah. was Mexican wine. Right on. And so we tried quite a few. And let me tell you. What's that? The new the, seafood? Or it's not new anymore, but. Uh, it was the, um, oh gosh, in the West Loop. We'll think of it. Yeah. I, we're, we're talking about the same one. Yep. Uh, well, he's going to look it up here. Yeah, I, but, I will. But um, that's, yeah, I haven't gone to that restaurant. And I heard about that, that there was a really strong showing of wines from Mexico on the list there. Yeah, uh, Lena Brava. There we go. It took Jeez me. Jeez Louise. Yeah, and, and it's absolutely 
astounding how mm-hmm. how good they were. Right and on. then the other place that I think is going to be Georgia, not the state, mm-hmm. but the but the country. Um, they've been producing wine for a very very long time. They do a lot of uh, different kinds of more like amphora and and clay pot and uh, uh, cement aging. And I just think that they're I don't know they're really fun. Yeah, they're really good. Uh, yeah, that part of the world, Armenia. I remember when when we had Pilkey on from yeah. you know the Paul Hobbs wines we tried and we tried the uh, the the wines from Armenia that were just delicious really yeah. really good yeah so. that's that's a that's a good a good area too and then my my final piece uh is if you like sparkling wine if you can get your hands on some english sparkling wine yeah from, those are really good yeah in general again and and getting better due to the climate change <laughs> it's like you know bittersweet <laughs> but but really getting on par with uh with champagne there yeah. So right on. I you know, like will they be a hot spot in the next two years or the next twenty? We don't, you know. No idea. Yeah. But um I think I think those are all great, great answers. Yeah, and so and some things that I'd love to I mean, it seems like every question is a our episodes, right? Like so many places I'd yeah, like to we're, explore. We're, we're doing ten or twelve mini episodes in one here, right? Yeah. We well, I mean keep... that's that's why it's so long, right? Yeah, I mean yeah. it's a longer episode because of that. The I, I would really like to seek out some wines from texas and to, because to all the 12 show. of our listeners actually chimed in with I questions i know it's amazing everybody <laughs> it is amazing i would love to do texas wines too man we'll 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 make that a point yeah and our final question for now for until now. ask the glass holes too which the, quick shout out to, revenge to, of, to, revenge of the listeners <laughs> revenge of the listeners yes <laughs> The listeners strike back. Right. <laughs> um, quick shout out to Bill with his question, which was. Um, oh, yeah. Let's do that one now. Uh, so it's basically if we had. We were going to open the glass hole bistro bistro. How would we curate the wine list? Dude, I want to do that as an episode. I agree. Like soon. So great, great question, Bill. I don't think we're going to be able to expand on that in this episode, but that deserves like its own episode. Well, the problem is it would take us half an hour to 45 minutes to hash this out probably yeah. right yeah we each have ideas and my guess is we'll come to some sort of kind of fun consensus that mm-hmm. would be not industry standard yeah which would be awesome or maybe we do end up on the industry standard and say well i guess they got it right yeah you know uh maybe that's one that even we could we could do uh on location you know a, a, oh, like that. a wine bar or something right on you know it could be kind of fun cool great so, with great. an audience of bill and uh the person bill brings Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Ding, ding, ding. Bill, you're the lucky winner of yeah. Ask a Glass Hole to uh, come on the show with us. So we'll we'll, we'll or, do that. Or loser. Depends on perspective. <laughs> uh, all right. So, yes, the final question now. Yeah, that was we did need to circle back to that. Thanks for remembering because it was a great question. Yeah. Uh, finally, we have Instavino Veritas. Uh, definitely a big supporter of the show. I know that you just got to to visit with him. Oh man, what a what a blast! He just had uh, the Aesop winemaker and partner at his house and former um, uh, 
guest of of that wine pod and former guest of that wine pod Tress Getting and his partner Matt of Aesop Wines Tress is the winemaker at Bialy they came to town to uh, have basically like a little pickup party for their wines with their customers that live around the area plus you know new people that may not have been exposed to them and like man Steve and his wife did an absolute bang up job on hosting this thing it was a lot of fun um back back to giving a shout out to kk kenny kim who was there um and he was snapping some photos at the party and uh you know just uh just a great great time and for me it was my first post pandemic like get out and socialize with people so i mean there must have been almost 50 people there did you remember how to do it or were you super awkward i was definitely super awkward (laughs) was there a lot of handshaking is it still fist bumping is it elbow bumping what's going on it was everything i saw it all i saw everything under the sun um some hugs yep some bro hugs you know like the half hug uh, with the pat on the back, but yeah, everything under the sun, but no masks, people uh, and all smiles, man. So I'm assuming with Tress, it was a shirt off chest bump. <laughs> That's right, man. That's right. He knocked me flat on my ass. <laughs> <laughs> but, awesome. I am so sad. I, I had to miss that. I, I, I'm a member of ASAP. I, after our episode, I, I joined, I, mm-hmm. I just couldn't resist. Um, so I, I unfortunately couldn't make it. We already had plans for that night um so i wept um at the dinner party i was at for a little while before getting back to my friends yeah that's why i disappeared for a bit guys it was so much fun but asap is doing this type of thing in various locations around the country so again like check out their website see what they're offering we can't recommend these wines enough they're they're this is almost the new hot spot in terms of like the new california with these micro producers that are finding fruit from these awesome old vine vineyards um that some have been kind of abandoned and brought back to life and you know just making oh really they probably cool use, you know what they probably use the wine wand the wine, yes. You dip the wine wand in the vineyard. Just in the soil. Come and it, back the next day. Boom. <laughs> you gotta do it on Whoever a, made it. She, um, you gotta gonna, do it on a flower day though. She's gonna sue the shit out of us. <laughs> Good luck on that, lady. Right. Um Okay. So Steve asks, I love Tokai. Tell me more about what it is and how it's made. Right on. Dude. Another episode. Another episode. So Oh, but man. let's give a summary here. Let's give so a why summary. Don't, why, don't, why don't you summarize this for everybody? So Tokai is a region in Hungary. So we're in the country of Hungary. It's in Oh, the, um, I thought you were just telling me that you're hungry. I am hungry. My Brunello is almost gone and I'm demanding my plate of prosciutto. <laughs> Pete, I know you got some in the fridge up there, you know. Um, so we're we're in Hungary. We're hungry and hungry. And it's a it's a region in the uh, the the northeast kind of part of the country. Um, it's a small country. It it definitely doesn't represent all the wine production that comes out of there, but it's probably the most well known and the most famous. They only grow white grapes. Can I say white grapes after this episode? Yes. <laughs> okay. They only grow white grapes here. It's made from a grape called ferment and another grape called harsh levelu. And ferment is the main variety in the blend. Harsh Levelu plays a secondary role. Harsh Levelu tends to be more, a little bit more aromatic, um, a little bit more floral. Ferment is a little bit more neutral. And an interesting fact, actually, is that of the wines coming out of Tokai, 
the vast majority are actually dry. Um, it's about 70% dry wine and only 30% is sweet or semi-sweet. And the dessert wine Tokai that we're going to talk about real quick makes up maybe 10% of the wine released from this area. Um, so you can find some dry ferment around and that's like a very dry crisp. Most producers will do it in stainless steel tank only and uh, could be very dry, crisp and refreshing. But the sweet wines we're talking about come from what what happens here is the climate is perfect for botrytis. Um, you have mountains nearby, you have warm summer days, you have a couple rivers that provide a little bit of moisture, and it provides the perfect conditions for these grapes to get dried out on the vine, for botrytis to attack the grape, which is a good, which is a rot, but a very good rot. It's not a bad rot. You don't get to, you don't have to throw the grapes away. Some might even say the noble rot. The noble rot, yes. And the grapes get dried out almost fully to like raisins. And then what happens is they pick these, and they have to do this by law. It's actually one of the more oldest regions for having rules to making the wine. That goes back into like the 1700s or something. Wow. That's how far back like the some of the rules that, the, that, that govern this area go. And they, they pick these grapes berry by berry in multiple passes. So literally berry by berry. Can you imagine, right? And the grapes are put into like these baskets, um, which are called putonios. It's a basket of grapes. And the and as they harvest, the baskets go, the grapes go into these vats, and they end up sitting in these vats for a number of weeks while they're continuing to do the harvest until the harvest is done. So when the harvest is finished, they have these dried grapes in these vats. And what they do is they need to put, they, there's like no juice and the sugar is so high that they can't ferment it on its own. They have to put it into a base wine. So they actually use the, the dry ferment wines. They put the dried grapes into that and let it macerate and end up making this very, very sweet wine. And what you end up seeing on the label of these Tokai dessert wines is a number and this word putonios. So one and two putonios, I believe it goes up to six. There's three, four, five, and six. And what that is, is how many baskets of these dried grapes into this certain size tank of wine or container of wine. I, I don't know the exact measurements right now off the top of my head. But when you end up pouring like four or five putonios of these dried grapes into this wine, that makes the wine even sweeter. And kind of the level five is sort of where it's at with these wines, where uh, you get around 140 grams per liter of residual sugar. But because it's made with the base wine, the wine still has balance. It still has somewhere around 12% alcohol and some very lively acidity to go along with it. So it's the perfect combination for ageability. And it also gives great balance. It doesn't make the wine cloying or super sweet. And because of that, you actually can think more savory when it comes to what do I drink with this stuff? You know, you can pair it up with um, foie gras and pâtés. Um, classic blue cheese and honey is really good. Um, you could even do um, 
you know, I might ask you like, if, like karma, like if you caramelize a meat, like whether that's like, like what are some things that yeah. I don't know if you do it on the smoker or like in a pan or something that's seared, like where you get that caramelization on like a pork belly or yep. something. Absolutely. I think if you, especially with the smoke and the sweetness and the, like in the, sometimes a little spice, right? Like kind of all balances together with that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, delicious. So you know, you, you think with sweet wines that have 140 grams per liter, like, oh, this is dessert wine, but actually because of that alcohol and that acidity, it's sort of a little bit like Sauterne. And a lot, actually a lot of the wineries that make the, some of the leading producers of Tokai are owned by larger corporations and companies that own big Bordeaux houses and, and Chateau and producers of Sauterne and things like that. Vegas Sicilia from Spain has a winery in Tokai that makes wine there. And, um, anyway, yeah, they're very famous. And one last thing I'll say is when I was talking about earlier, when they harvest those grapes and they put them into a vat and they end up sitting there for a few weeks before they fish those grapes out to put into the base wine, there is a little bit of juice that comes that like from the weight of the grapes that crushes a little juice out. And what that's called is essentia. And they, they will not necessarily bottle it every single vintage, but they can, and they bottle this stuff and dude, it is like 600 grams per liter, but it's heavenly and it, it could be like honey. It doesn't ferment, but it does a little bit. They put it in glass demijohns for a few years. And then if they want to bottle it, they will put it into the bottle at about one, two or 3% max alcohol ABV and the rest. I mean, it's like honey and other times what they'll do is they'll put that Essencia into the Tokai Azu, the grapes for the Tokai as uh, wine is called Azu. Um, so Tokai Azu Five Putonios would be like the full name on the label, which they don't have to put all that on the label, but I think they really enjoy that in order to tell the story of all of this. Yeah. But this Essencia stuff, I've actually never had it, bro. And it sounds like you have. I did because I, I can't w- imagine. I went to this crazy ass tasting. Mm hmm. That I'm not even sure how I got the invite, <laughs> but it was people who are much more famous than me. Uh, and it was just kind of a little room in the back of um, a restaurant in Chicago. And it was all Tokai. Mm-hmm. And Essencia was, we had Essencia, but we also had a 100 year old Tokai. Holy schmoly. So, I mean, it was like this crazy shit. And they talked about like how it's technically like you were saying, it's the oldest delimited wine region in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Royal decree in the 1700s, uh, early, fairly or maybe mid 17. I can't remember. I think it was, I think it was like 1730s. Like, yeah, I think like, you're right. I think you're right. Like a third of the way through the century. Yeah. So it was unbelievable and it really awesome. gave me an appreciation and it was a walk through, I don't know. I mean, there was like 12 different wines. I remember there was just crazy foods pairing, uh, you know, like we paired a steak of, uh, uh, like a, this weird steak. I can't remember exactly <laughs> what was on it. Right. But it was a steak, yeah, <laughs> uh, a ribeye. And we had a little piece of that with one of the, the expressions of Tokai and I'll be damned if that wasn't just delicious, right? Yeah. Kind of going back to what to pair and how to pair it. So it was fun. And I mean, you don't forget things like that. It was one of the more ex- special things that I got to do. So amazing. Yeah. Anyway, 
That's really crazy. I would never think uh, some piece of ribeye with with my tokai. No, I well, definitely it, would think savory. Yeah, but steak. Wow, that's that's really cool. But I, I guess like that, you get that body and that that acidity. Um, that that goes a long way with the sweetness. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, dude, this was fun. Hell yeah! So I appreciate all the questions you same people have to ask them the next time we do this because we're out of listeners. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we're gonna address some of this stuff in future episodes too. Very cool. And thanks for kind of hanging on for I don't know nearly an hour and a half I think uh, of us talking, but it was fun. Yeah, I think it was worth it. And um, you know, having all having the the amount of questions come through, just thank you guys so much again. Um, that that played into the length of the episode for sure. But we didn't want to exclude anyone, but. Uh, it'll be fun to do some of those, take some of those other questions and do uh, a, a whole episode where we focus in on it. Awesome. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up. Let's do it. Let's go get some prosciutto. All right. Remember, life is short. Drink what you like tonight. Thank you for listening to That Wine Pod. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at, at That Wine Pod. And we are That Wine Podcast on Facebook. Also, check out Mike on Instagram at Vino Mike and Pete is at Fat Man Stories. Please subscribe to That Wine Pod on your favorite podcast app and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the show. The music is Proto Funk by Kevin McLeod. That Wine Pod is a production of Paragon Media.